heaven, thank you for bringing us together in this place today that we may worship you. There is no greater joy for our souls. There is no one who is higher in our affections than you, O Lord our God. We pray that today your Holy Spirit will be present in this assembly in power, that we will know a powerful moving of the Spirit of God in our hearts, in some to save and others to sanctify. May your word come to us in Holy Spirit power as well. May it accomplish every purpose for which you send it. May it make us more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you, Father, for this Mother's Day, for these families and the ones that come in the next service to dedicate themselves and their infants to you. And we pray for them. We pray that their boys and girls will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved at an early age and will faithfully follow him all the days of their lives. Thank you for all the mothers of this church. Bless them today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few, days, a few words about Mother's Day. So we all know it's a wonderful day for a lot of mothers, and it's a difficult day for some mothers and some women. We all understand that. So we're going to do what Romans chapter 12 tells us to do. It says rejoice with those who rejoice, so we're doing that, and weep with those who weep, so we're doing that. And we understand both sides of that equation, so I want you to know that. Our hearts go out to those of you for whom this is a mixed day, for whom this is a challenging day, for whom this is a difficult day, but our hearts definitely rejoice with those of you for whom this is a, a joyful day as well. We're not going to have a Mother's Day message unless you really use your imagination and somehow turn this into one, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 17, so let me read them for you, and you follow along, please. And here the Apostle Paul writes, and this is God's Word, "'For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that,' According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is our text today, and I love it so much that I have already been sad this morning that we'll look at it today and then it'll be gone. We'll be on to the next passage. I'd like to just stay here. I'd like to just camp here for a while, for weeks and weeks, until it gets in us deeply enough, takes root and bears the fruit it's supposed to bear. I feel like it's going to go past too quickly, and it's so wonderful. It deserves our attention and our adoration of the truth therein. Let me give you a quote from H.G. Wells. Any of you remember who H.G. Wells was? He was a non-Christian, a historian, an author. He's the one who came out with that radio program in the late 1800s, The War of the Worlds. He's most famous for that. People heard it, and they thought we were actually being invaded by aliens, and, and a lot of people went nuts over this whole thing. He, that H.G. Wells, he wrote, if there is no God, nothing matters. If there is a God, nothing else matters. Now, you just think about that a little bit, please. It's absolutely profound. It's absolutely true. If there is no God, then, well, come on, nothing matters. Just face it. 
Most people aren't atheists. Very few Americans are atheists. We're told about 6%. But there's a big pile of agnostics in there. And at least to the agnostics and also to the atheists, I'll tell you, if there is no God, you've got to face the facts. Nothing matters. Would like to expound on that a bit, but I won't. But on the other hand, if there is a God, then it is true, my friends, by comparison, nothing else matters. I'm here to tell you today, there is a God. There is a great being who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. It is he who has created you. He gives you life and breath at this very moment. That came from God. And because he exists, nothing else compares for you. Nothing else matters by comparison. He is supreme in your life. He is your sovereign. He is your God. He is your maker. He is that great creator, the sitter in the heavens. Conjure up images of the throne room from Daniel 7, Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation 4 and 5, that throne room. We live right now under that throne room. We live every moment under that throne room. He is the sitter, the one who sits upon the throne. There's nothing like him. There's nothing that compares to him. There's no one so worthy of your love and your, your affection. To know him is to have life indeed. So it would be very, under, very important for you to understand that the reason why you exist, that the reason why God is still giving you life today, the, the reason why you live and move and have your being in him, the reason he gives you time is so that you might spend it in preparing your soul for eternity. That's why you're here. You need to know what life on the planet is about. That's what it's about. It's to prepare your soul for eternity. It's to live in God's presence, to come to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, what really happens is he becomes your God. He becomes God to you. He becomes the supreme object of your adoring affection. He becomes the one whom you follow, the one in whom you most delight. He becomes God. And all other things by comparison become rather small. Amen? Amen. Today, in the book that matters, the book that comes from that God, we're thinking about the person that matters most in that book. That is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're learning about some things that are his will for us, some things that matter in this prayer of the Apostle Paul. Let's go back and look at verse 14 now. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And the thing we're going to note first from this is simply this. It's kind of simple. Just note with me, please, Paul prays. So it's not a passage in which he says you should pray, but we should notice Paul prays. Hmm, what should I learn from that? Well, I should pray too. These things are written for our admonition. It's not prescriptive of what you ought to do, but it's descriptive of what you ought to do. We notice Paul a believer in that God, a follower of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He, he prays. This is actually his second prayer in the book of Ephesians. The first one was chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. We could drop back from Ephesians and just go whole Bible, and there are, somebody has counted, so I'm just believing them. I didn't check this out. There are 44 Holy Spirit-inspired in Scripture prayers. Google them, read them, enjoy them, pray like them. And this is one of them. This is one of 44 Holy Spirit-inspired prayers in the Bible. They teach us how to pray. They teach us to pray. And if, you're, if you become a Christian, you might be wondering, you know, I'm looking into the faith. I came to church today because I'm realizing I need to count the cost. If I'm going to become a Jesus follower, it's going to mean church. I better go see church. I better check out church. I better find out what's going on. I better count the cost. It's wise of you to do that. If you're looking in today and you're counting the cost and you're wondering, so if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, what will that mean? Well, here's one thing it'll certainly mean. You will start to pray. For the rest of your life, you will pray. Because you will now have a heavenly Father whom you love supremely, and the reason you're able to communicate and think and use words is because He can do those things, and He made you to do those things, so you and He can do those things together, and you will do those things. And it will be your delight to spend the rest of your life offering up prayers, engaging in communion with Him in prayer. Prayer is to the Christian life like breathing is to biological life. If you're alive in Christ, you pray. And so we're not surprised that Paul prays, there is a God, nothing else matters. Who else would I rather talk to? With whom would I rather have communion and fellowship than my heavenly Father? Now, we could get into things like, well, how long should my prayers be? Fortunately, the Bible doesn't say. So there, you get to decide. How often should I pray? Well, certainly daily. Jesus gives us a model prayer, and in it he says, give us this day our daily bread. So it sounds like you're supposed to be praying about that daily. Certainly, it'd be hard to imagine a decent day going by as a child of God when you did not get to commune and fellowship, when you were not forced by events to the throne room to, to fellowship with your God. So certainly you, you ought to be praying daily, but how long or how often in that day? Scripture doesn't say, but it does say this, pray without ceasing. So that's a lot. How much should I pray? Probably more than you do. Fair? Yeah. How often should I pray? Probably more than you do. Now, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to give you Steve's prescription that doesn't come from Scripture. But his, I think this is a good idea. That's all I'm presenting this as. Here's a good idea. I think you would find it beneficial if you have one prayer, probably early in your day, probably connected with some reading in God's Word, when you pause and pray, maybe in response to what you read in God's Word, and maybe in anticipation of what's coming in your day, it would be good to have one stated prayer season every day. At least one of those would be good followed by many, 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 many other prayers that arise with occasions, that arise ad hoc throughout the day, and some prayers with your family somewhere in the day. So perhaps a good thing to attach that to is after dinner, you're praying with your children, you're praying with your wife. So there ought to be a lot of prayer 
in the life of a Christian. Your prayer life might want to go like our elders' meetings go. Well, what do we do at our elders' meetings? Well, we begin with one stated time of prayer where we pray our way into the meeting, and then we start talking about our agenda items. And after agenda item number two, we all kind of have this feeling in the room, well, man, that thing we just talked about, we need to pray for them now, and we stop and we pray. And then we talk about item number three and item number four. It's like, oh, man, we can't leave that now without praying over that one. And so we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray as the day, as the meeting goes on. And that's a pretty good picture for what your Christian life might look like. So the first thing we're noting is simply that, that Paul prays. I wonder if you were writing me a letter, might you pause in chapter three and pray after you already paused in chapter one and prayed. Let us be a praying people, my brothers and sisters. Pray more. Here's a second thing I want you to notice. Paul prays in response to theology. Let's read this slide. Paul says again, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees. For this reason, notice that word, notice that phrase. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. Why are you praying, Paul, for this reason? Well, what's the reason? It's what I already said in Ephesians. It's chapter 1 and chapter 2, and especially chapter 3, right before this. Paul pauses and says, for this reason. For what reason? The stuff I just told you. Because of the gospel of the grace of God, Salvation through Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. It's because of the one new man that God has now revealed that he's made in Christ. And Jew and Gentile are now taken out of those envelopes and put in the one new man envelope. And because of the church that has now been revealed and how God takes people who didn't like each other and makes them love each other and makes them one in Christ. Because of everything Paul's been teaching, for this reason, I bow my knees. Paul prays in response to theology, which leads me to give you this little phrase, theology leads to doxology. Doxology means praise, comes from the the Hebrew word, the Greek word doxa, to glorify. Theology leads to doxology, and so to, to prayer. So what I'm saying here is there are lots of reasons to pray, like we already mentioned some, because you're alive in Christ, because you have a heavenly Father who cares for your soul, because you're told to come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when are you not in a time of need? There, there are lots of reasons to pray. But, but here's, a, here's a good reason to pray. It's because of theology. Paul says, I'm praying because of the theology I just laid down for you in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. In other words, the normal Christian response to such a body of truth as he just penned for us is to say, oh man, I need to go to my father about that. Like a right response to God's word is to give praise and to pray. Doxology followed by prayer. So Paul prays for this reason. It would be a very good thing for you in that morning time when you have some Bible reading to set the stage in your soul for the day to come, to to realign yourself with God in heaven as your day begins. It would be a very good thing to respond to what you've read in your Bible by praying about it to God. So there's kind of a conversation going. God speaks to you 
through his divine word, and you get to come boldly to the throne of grace and reply back to him. And in fact, one of the purposes for prayer, of course, is not just to get, but to give to give back to him doxology, to give back to him your prayers, to give back to him your compliance with his revealed will. One of the purposes for prayer that we might have mentioned is a prayer exists to realign us with God's will. That may be why Paul, instead of saying, for this reason I pray, he says, for this reason I bow my knees. Was he literally bowing his knees? Did he mean I actually got down on my knees? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is just a term that he puts in place of prayer. The point is, when you're praying, you are in effect bowing. What, why, why should I pray? So that you will spend some time bowing in your soul before the will of the Heavenly Father, so that you will realign your will with His for the day and for your life. A very important part of prayer is bowing before God, whether you bow literally or not. Like I used to, early when I was first saved, one of my roommates at Bible college, every day he'd spend about an hour with his Bible on his bed and on his knees in front of that Bible. And I asked him one day, and he and I are still very much in touch. We wrote this week, he's a pastor in Kentucky. And I asked him, Dan, what are you doing while you're spending that hour on your knees? It was after lunch every day. And he said, well, I'm mainly memorizing Scripture and meditating on it, and then I'm praying back to God about it. So I started doing that, memorizing books and long passages of the Bible on my knees. Pastor Steve, do you still do that? Well, I'm almost 68, folks, and there's torn meniscus and bad torn meniscus. And I don't want to bother with a surgery. That would take time, and that's recovery, and forget it. I'll just live with it. So actually, no, but I'm going to tell you something. Some of you will know this by experience. Praying on your knees, reading and memorizing Scripture and praying back to God about it on your knees is a very different experience than praying while you're driving to work. Right? Like, don't imagine. They're identical. They're the same. They are not identical. Physically getting down on your knees and praying and maybe reading Scripture and praying back to God about what you've just read is a very different experience than just offering up a prayer into the air. Try it. Write me a letter if you don't agree. I don't think I'll get any letters. So Paul prays in response to theology, so should we. Here's a third thing I want us to note. Let's read the verse again, Ephesians 3, 14 to 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul prays to the archetypal father. I looked it up. Should I have said archetypical father? Don't know. They're just about the same thing. They were trying to explain some nuances, but my name, my brain's out in space and I can't tell. So archetypal, archetypical, potato, potato, I don't know. We're going with archetypal. Paul prays and he, he describes the Father in this unique way, like, hmm, why did he choose that? There must be a point. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, and then he adds this unnecessary phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
Now what you'll need to know and what will help you to know is the Greek word for father is patros, and the Greek word used here for family is patria, and they're very related otherwise, patra, obviously, patria and patros, father and fatherhood. What Paul is saying here is, when you look around the earth and you see families, and this is, this is bigger, this is back in their day, family was not like you and your wife and your three kids. Family was more like your clan. That's what this word means. Family is more like your, your tribe. I'll just go ahead and say it, even though I know somebody's gonna misunderstand it. Please don't talk to me if you're tempted to misunderstand it. This, this is the, what humanity has always meant by patriarchy. And there is God the Father's patriarchy. In other words, the universal is, the universe is eminently patriarchal. And then there are the patriarchies he has established on the earth. So like Mr. Bill, who led us in the baby dedication today. Usually Stan does that. Stan's teaching a members class. Bill stood in for us. Bless you, brother. Like the bow tie and the braces. And he and his wife, Denise, have 21 grandchildren. How many great-grandchildren, Denise? None. Ha! So you're not ahead of us in that one. We've got 12 grandkids. It feels like riches. You've got 21 grandchildren. That's a tribe, folks. When they get together for Easter and take a family picture, you need a wide lens for that one. And that's the kind of thing Paul has in mind here when he says, now, when you look over all the earth and all of time, you see those things. There's a, there's a fatherhood, there's a tribe, there's a clan, there's a family, and it's many families that make up one family. And Paul says, what I want you to understand is every one of those exists and is called what they're called because they're named after him. In other words, you cannot get away from the fatherhood of God on this planet. Because everywhere you look and you see a family, and oh, there's a family, and oh, there's a family, and they are all visual reminders. Everywhere, every day, there is a God who has a family. There's a God who has his own blood-bought children, and all of this is modeled after that, and all of this is named after that. So Paul's making a point. I'd like you to have this point in your soul. Would you, I'm gonna try to do this. Um, no, I won't really be able to do this. Every day for the rest of my life, every time I see a family, I'll think of God as the archetypal father, as the archetypal patriarch, because that's what Paul is describing here. Do you, you get that? You following? You want me to repeat it? No, you got it. All right. Very good. So those are some of the things we notice and learn from Paul's prayer so far. Paul prays. Paul prays in response to theology. Paul prays to the archetypal father. But now, what does he pray? This gets even better now. You ready? That was like the warm-up stuff. Now we get to what he really prays. What does Paul pray? Here's what he asks the father for. That... Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches, oh man, that according to the riches of his glory, all right, how rich is that? Because that's the standard for what he's going to ask for. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be what? 
according to the standard of how great is his glory, that's how great he wants this for you. What, what's this? That you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that you would be, that we would be strong Christians. He prays, he prays in response to the theology, he prays to the archetypal father, and here's the, here's the prayer, the first one, there's more, here's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Oh, Father, I'm praying for these Ephesians that they would be strong in Jesus Christ. That they would be strong followers of the Savior, of the Lamb. That they would be strong in the grace of God. That they would be strong in the gospel. That they would be strong in biblical doctrine. He's praying, you see that, that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's the first thing we notice Paul actually prays, strengthened with power. Let's drop back and notice again, what's the standard for the power? It is, it is according to the riches of his glory. So how much power of God do you want in a believer's life? And he says, well, it's the same amount as this. How much glory of God is there in the world? So that's the standard. It's the Greek word kata. It means according to the standard of. Here's how, here's how much power I want you to experience, God's power in your soul. I want the power that you experience to be commensurate with the glory of God as seen in the universe. Well, how great is the glory of God in the universe? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we also, read, we also read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. So the whole earth and all the heavens, you can't open your eyes and look at anything without seeing the glory of God. Like I was sitting in my breakfast nook yesterday reviewing this message on my phone, and I often do that. I work on things, review it on the phone, because I want to get upstairs out of my basement for a while and see some daylight. It was raining. But like right at that point, I glanced outside and saw all the beautiful things outside of my window, the birds on our feeders, the plants that are growing, the green, the beautiful sky, the rain falling, my gutter not working, and rain falling off where it shouldn't. But I, just one glance outdoor and you go, yeah, I see what this means. There's like, there's glory. The whole earth, the whole universe proclaims the glory of God. It's shouting at you. I'm God, I'm glorious, you should seek me. That's why I've given you time. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent and turn to me that I would be God to you. The whole universe is shouting that at you with God's glory. Paul says, all right, so that's my standard. That's the kata. That's what I want the strength and with might in your inner man to be according to. As great as is the glory of God in all of creation, that's how great I want to see the power of God in believers' lives, in, in your lives. By the way, and this is almost an aside, I guess. I'm not sure if this is necessary, but it's so good. So the Old Testament word for glory is 
kavod. In its root, it means heavy. It means weighty. This is no flimsy, flim-flam God. This is no like ephemeral, I'm not even sure he's even there God. No, the, he is weighty. That's why if he exists, there's nothing else that compares. He alone, is, he's weighty. Is he weighty in your soul? Is he weighty in your life? Is he weighty in you? And the New Testament word glory, I already mentioned, doxa, it means like the shining, the effulgence, the beauty, the light that comes forth from. So he's weighty and he's beautiful and glorious. And Paul says, that's the standard according to which I want you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, this is not a one-time prayer in the New Testament. It's a many times prayer. I point that out because that indicates this is really important. It was more important than just getting mentioned once here. It's really, really important. So we're going to chase around some other references about this quick. Let's go ahead and do that. So we'll go over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. We'll put it up for you. Here it is. Later, he's going to exhort us with these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That's what you're able to do when you're strong. You're strong to stand. So you don't get knocked down by the devil's fiery darts so you don't get drawn away from Christ by temptations to no longer believe, to get into some human man-made religion. No, instead you stand, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Christians who are strong have fiery darts going right past, and they're still standing in Jesus Christ. They stand. We find this again in Colossians 1.11. Paul writes, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, what for? For all endurance and patience with joy. What does it mean if you're made strong? It means you endure, another good word, you persevere. You keep on repenting of your sins that you keep on committing and you keep on believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the primary thing for which he wants us to be strengthened, to keep on repenting, to keep on believing, to keep following Jesus Christ, and to endure all the temptations to draw you away from Christ and do it with patience and with joy. Or again, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, a verse I love. Here it is. Be watchful. You can picture that, right? You're in the old days. There's a wall around the city. You got guys up on the wall. What's your job up there? To watch. What are you watching for? Bad guys. Anything bad on the horizon getting near my city? All right, you're watching. So you be watchful because there are enemies out there. Stand firm in the faith. What do the enemies want you to do? Not stand firm in the faith, but walk away from Jesus Christ. So you be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Man, do I ever want to preach a whole sermon on that phrase. It's one Greek word, it's andrizomai. It takes the word for man, andras, or on air, and turns it into a verb, man eyes. This is spoken to the women of the church 
as well as to the men. It tells everybody in the church, man eyes, ladies, man eyes. Men, man eyes. This is back in the day when people, everybody understood, yeah, there are differences between men and women. And right now he's pointing to some of the characteristics of men and saying we all need a dose of that. Do you need some help with that? What, what are some of those differences? Like the best psychologist on the planet, now I'm getting off track, darn. Best psychologist on the planet, most of whom are women, because one of the differences is men are primarily interested in things and women are primarily interested in people and relationships. Uh, they, they tell us that here, here are some of the main differences. Well, that's one of them. And another one is due to testosterone, men are assertive and women are nurturing. And those right there are probably the, the greatest differences between men and women, and, and they're marked. They're, they're very marked differences. And Paul is here speaking to the men and women and saying, all right, now, in the thing I'm talking to you about, you both need to be like the man part. You both need to be assertive. You both need to be aggressive. You, you need to act like men because you need to stand firm in the faith, and there are going to be temptations to take you over there. And then he finishes it with, be strong. So, what are we seeing? Again, Paul says, be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong. Be strong for what? So you don't get drawn away from Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 John 2, 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. What's, what's the characteristic of strong? And the word of God abides in you. That's the strong we're looking for, that the word of God will continue to abide in you. And you won't count the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified as common. And you won't say Jesus Christ is just a dead rabbi. And you won't trample him underfoot. No, you'll keep on believing. You'll keep on clinging. You'll keep on loving. You'll keep on following. And you have overcome the wicked one, the wicked one who wants to sift you like wheat, the wicked one who's seeking to devour you, to separate you from Jesus Christ. Again, 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And again, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit, the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self control. So Paul says, here's my prayer for you. My prayer is, can I go back and find it quick, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthened with power. Notice the agency for your being strengthened with power. It's through his spirit. Well, where do I get this power? I'm weak. Yeah, you get it through his spirit the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, sound in the things of God. You get this through his Holy Spirit. Being a strong Christian is a Holy Spirit thing. It comes from the Holy Spirit in your soul. Remember, there's economy in the Trinity, although there's interpenetration too. But there's economy in the Trinity, oikonomos, there's household arrangement. And in general sense, it's the Father who plans, and it's the Son who procures, and it's the Holy Spirit who applies or delivers. And that's what we see here. It's the Holy Spirit who will take the power of God and bring it into your soul, into your, your inner man. 
So this is, this is not about being strong at the gym. This is not, I can deadlift 500 pounds, which I can't, I never will. This is not about, uh, I can squat 405, which I did once and hurt my back. <laughs> this is not about outward strength, it's about inward strength. He wants you to be strong through the agency of the ministry of the Spirit of God in your inner man, in your soul. I'm reminded of Zechariah 4.6. So many years ago, I was a pastor in Riverside, California. I was probably 31 when this happened. A man in the church named Clarence Cree. He was a professor at the University of California, Riverside, right next door to our church. And Clarence Cree showed up one day with a nice big fat volume and he gave it to me. It was by the Puritan Stephen Carnock. And the name of the volume is the existence and attributes of God, and he wanted me to have it. And he affixed in the front pages uh, Zechariah 4.6 for me, which reads, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, human might, nor by power, human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, it's in Zechariah too. It's Holy Spirit power in the inner man. Well, how do I get that? Where do I get that? Like if I want bench pressing power, I can go to Planet Fitness, 10 bucks a month. Where do I get Holy Spirit power? Well, let me just read you a verse and we have to close this pretty soon here. So we're coming down home stretch, hang in there. 1 Timothy 4, 7, B through 8. Paul says, Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. So you have to train yourself. For while bodily training is of some value, okay, so it is. It's not worthless. Paul doesn't say exercise is worthless. No, he says it has some value. It has value for the present life. It has value for your emotional well-being. It has value for your psychological well-being. It has value for your spiritual well-being. It has value, and so I want that value. So that's good. But while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. What do you mean by that, Paul? As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So deadlifting is good. Don't hurt your back. It, it holds promise for this life, so do it. But bodily training is only of some value. Godliness, training in godliness, holds promise for this life, makes it better, and for the life to come. It would be a very bad deal to really, really, really get into bodily exercise. You pick your form, running, marathons, weightlifting, whatever it is, to really, really get into that and to excel in that, but to seldom exercise spiritually. To have a slight or non-existent plan for your own spiritual strengthening, for your own spiritual development. It would be a bad idea to have a stupendous plan and an amazing regime to get stronger in body, but to have very little for your soul. I'm reminded the English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, um, he said, uh, got distracted by movement to my right. 
he, he said, uh, the average British person pays more attention to their dogs and cats than they do to their never dying soul. So kind of in the same way, it would be a bad deal to play, pay more attention to your body and not to your soul. Go ahead and be a Pee Wee Herman bodily, but get strong in Jesus Christ. All right, here's where I'm going to close because I'm getting signals. What they are. I'm very perceptive like that. So, final slide. Let's be strong in. See that one slide, man? Let's be strong in. Let's be strong in the faith. You're not walking back from Jesus Christ. I'm going to be found in Christ at my last breath. I'm going to die in the arms of Jesus. Let's be strong in the faith. Let's be strong in Bible doctrine. Let's be strong in godly character, not just doctrine, but the character that comes from it. Let's be strong in the disciplines of the Christian life. Let's be strong. So that's Paul's first prayer. What's he pray for? We go back to it. He prays that we would be uh, strong. that God would grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Brothers and sisters, be strong. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us a strong people for your honor, for your praise, for your glory. That even according to the standard of your glory, we would be made strong by your Holy Spirit in our inner man. Lord Jesus, maybe there are people in this room facing fierce temptations. Those temptations might include temptations to draw back, to shrink back from Jesus Christ. We're praying for that person, for that man, for that woman, that right now you would strengthen them with might in their inner man, that they would stand in Jesus Christ. We also pray to you, our Father, that you would draw people to Jesus Christ. There are probably people in this room, probably people with us online, who've never really believed on the Lord Jesus and been made new in Christ. And we pray, Father, that right now you would work with such Holy Spirit power in their hearts that they would find themselves turning, that you would be their God, turning to believe on Jesus Christ. So, Father, have your way in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.